Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 44. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how did they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Camden Hanslick-Burton. Camden teaches biology and AP biology at Summit Sierra High School in Seattle, Washington. He is a Knowles Teacher Initiative Senior Fellow and actively collaborates with his fellow alumni of the You Can Teach program as well as other teachers. He is a member of NSTA, the Region 9 Coordinator for NABT, covering the Pacific States, and a member of KABT. In 2015, Camden was awarded the National Outstanding Biology Teacher and the NABT Outstanding New Biology Teacher Award for the state of Kansas. He also contributed to the Unity and Diversity Writing Project in 2015 with his essay, Fail, Applaud, Repeat, and his 2016 essay, A Plea for Compassion. You can follow Camden's musings on Twitter, at Camden Burton. Welcome, Camden. (laughs) How are you? Good. I I tell you what, I screw up that unity and diversity writing project every time I read it. Perfect. (laughs) I don't know what it is about those those words, unity and diversity, but there's something about that that I've read because I've had you know I've had Knefki on and I've had a couple other contributors do it, and every single time I read that, I I stumble over that phrase. So, I I won't won't clean that one up in the edit. (laughs) Nice. You you really nailed the other uh, acronyms. I think a teacher you really grown into that (laughs) yeah the well i mean i'm a member of everything but kabt so um (laughs) thank you yeah well it's uh and i you know we've got the many great kabt teachers that and associates that i've talked to over the years so um it's that one rolls off the tongue at this point right yeah i've i've stolen enough from uh brad williamson uh, over the years uh, that (laughs) i i know that acronym pretty well well, if he's listening, we can keep a counter of how many times I drop his name today. Okay, that's good. I, I, people have often told me I need to get him on the podcast, uh, so I, I've never, I've never approached him for it. He's so intimidating to me. So, <laughs> I'm surprised at this point you're intimidated. Oh uh, yeah, After I mean, 44 of these. Well, he, you know, the funny thing is, is I was at NABT this year and he cold called me. I said this on a previous <laughs> podcast. He cold called me and I was like deep in contemplation. I was questioned. I totally stumbled and it was like, man, I am a 16 year old who got called out by the teacher and uh, <laughs> wasn't sure what to say. <laughs> now try going through four years of university prep with him. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I can imagine it's, uh, you know, hey, I can't imagine a better, uh, better methods teacher, though. So, you know, even. Hey, yeah. Even if it's not methods, he's teaching you methods all the time. So yeah, I really didn't know until my senior year what who I had actually had teaching me all this stuff. Yeah. I just knew him as my professor, and then I realized that his name was kind of bigger than that. Yeah. Some of the NABT circles, so yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I've had similar moments before, you know, like when you're going through university and you're like, you know, 18, 19, and you meet somebody and you're like, uh, I don't know who this And then all of a sudden you get out and realize this person is well-known throughout oh, yeah. their entire field so yeah that's a i can i can totally appreciate that i've been there not with obviously not with brad but with other people in the past so 
Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty... good, to, good to know him before that moment. You don't want to psych yourself out too early. Yeah, I think that would have been intimidating if you knew what you were getting yourself into. So, yeah. All right. Well, you've opened us up now that you've uh, you've sort of talked about what it was like to train with uh, with great the great Brad Williamson. Uh, so let's go to the first question I'd like to ask everybody. How did you become a science teacher? Uh, what led you into the science classroom? Well, I think originally when I wanted to become, I wanted to be a scientist like growing up. Uh, middle school and high school is when I got really into science. Um, I wanted to be a forensic scientist. I was around the age of like CSI Las Vegas had become like a huge <laughs> thing. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to go uh, solve crimes and do all this like biotechnology research and everything like that was what I wanted to do. And uh, my senior year of high school, I took AP biology, obviously in like the old style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that teacher, I really like, that was like the first time I had actually been taught to like think and be curious and that that was like a useful skill as a scientist it wasn't enough to just be able to regurgitate a lot of things back um i think now he retired like a year or two after i left i think he would have been a great teacher for like the new ap bio the revised curriculum yeah um just because like the way he thought about and the way he approached it was i think what i try to emulate as an ap teacher myself but um so we did a lot of experimentation, a lot of um, open inquiry process. And uh, that was something that like solidified, okay, I'm going to go be a scientist. This is like what I want to do. I like using my brain as a play. Mm-hmm. Um, went to the University of Kansas and then sort of my first year, I thought, oh, you know, I don't really want to go into police work. Didn't realize I, like how much of that was in it. Mm-hmm. Forensic science was sort of wearing off. I'm like, oh, right. TV is not reality. <laughs> You know, that kind of stuff you figure out when you're going into college. And uh, my sophomore year, I just happened to take, uh, actually at the time, I think they offered money. Like you, you got like the credit paid covered if you took this like intro to education course. <laughs> um, and at the time it was offered by this like brand new program called the You Can Teach program. And it was trying to be really clever because <laughs> University of Kansas, you can't teach. Um, and I was taught it actually by Brad's wife, Carol Williamson. Um, and that was in that program. They like, let us go teach like how circuits work to like little kindergartners and, (laughs) um, really get our feet wet, try not to scare us off from like middle school and high schoolers. And, um, I think that was like when I was like, Oh, actually, wait, I really enjoyed my senior AP biology class. I really enjoyed like the feeling of like those aha moments and, um, learning, like really getting into the science practices and valuing that over just content and, uh, I think that was when I realized, like, I think I want to pay that forward and do that um, as a teacher myself. And so I continue with that program. Uh, and then, of course, down the road, met Brad, who was my research methods teacher. And uh, I got handed off from Carol, who taught me so much about teaching, and Brad, who taught me so much about biology teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was really what hooked me was that sophomore year class that I I think I've heard through uh, some of your other uh, interviews you've done where serendipity plays such a role in people's lives. That was definitely one of those moments I had no idea what I was doing and it paid off. Yeah. So at that point, I mean, you went into school as a, a biology major and then you get this education piece. Did you, I, I don't know how Kansas worked at the time. Did you continue with your biology degree and then go get an education degree on top? Did you get like a dual degree, a degree with certificate? How did that all work in Kansas? Yeah. So you can teach program is out of 
it was a replicate at the time of the UTeach program, the University of Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and so specifically, they like entice you because you can still get your uh, degree in mathematics or engineering or science, what have you. Um, and then you get a certificate too. So basically you're taking like the minimum credits in education courses to also like be certified in your state. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of like, I think initially it's like, oh, you can still go be a scientist, but you know, you can also have this in your back pocket in case it's, of course, like so many NSF grants have components of <laughs> outreach and things like that. So yep. it is incredibly useful if you do stay um, in the research field, but uh, it was also like, you can, you know, just keep this going and maybe you want to be a teacher. And that I think helped me keep both like all options on the table for me. Um, and I think for a lot of people who became and still are really excellent teachers, um, that's sort of how they got us into it and <laughs> kept us there. They like tricked you. Uh. <laughs> well, later, I, I later went to recruit for them and like work for them as like a student intern mm -hmm. my junior senior year. And I always felt like kind of icky as a salesman, be like, oh, I, you know, I feel weird being like, yo, you don't really have to do this. You can just use this, to, like put it in your back pocket. But <laughs> at the same time, I thought, I mean, that's what I needed to hear three years ago. And then, mm -hmm. you know, fell in love with teaching. So never want to like shortchange the teaching profession, some amazing teacher. So yeah, I'll lie a little. <laughs> All right. So you graduate and you get a job and you go out and you start teaching in Kansas um, I, I mentioned you were associated with the Knowles teaching, uh, initiative. So did you get hooked right into that right away? You know, you're a new teacher, you get hooked right into Knowles as well. Yeah. Right. It just sort of, <laughs> I, everything falls like nicely into place. Um, I think my, my senior year of college, uh, Brad told me that he just happened to meet, um, one of the people on uh, one of the program officers for, uh, at that time, the Knowles science teaching foundation and, uh, said I should apply for this thing and went through it and again like fell in love with that and thought oh man these people are doing some really cool stuff they're training some amazing thinkers as teachers and uh, as as you know there's amazing uh, NABT uh, <laughs> force of former Knowles teachers now like senior fellows we call ourselves mm -hmm. uh, so yeah that fell in line right into going into my first year teaching yeah. So now, I mean, I don't actually have my timeline here on like when you all graduated and all that stuff, but, but I know you taught in Kansas for a while and this sort of leads a little bit into the question because you're not in Kansas anymore. Um, I did yep. not plan that line. I really didn't. <laughs> that like was honestly, I heard it coming out of my mouth organically and I'm like, Oh my God, I hope what a cliche that is. Uh, yeah, but, but I have I, to go. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but you know, you, you left Kansas and I read, um, I read a, an article that was, was put in the Kansas city star, uh, that, that was from you, uh, because, you know, I'd mentioned to you before we started recording, you know, in 2015, we were in the, we were both awarded that, that NABT yeah. award, um, uh, in there, but at, when you got your NABT for uh, your any your OBTA from NABT, I, now that I use my acronyms correctly, uh, you were not teaching in Kansas anymore. Even though you were getting the Kansas award, you'd moved on to to Washington State. So uh, I guess the question is like, how is that transition from Kansas to Washington? I, I understand a little bit of the reason why to leave Kansas, but at the same time, you had this enormous network in Kansas that supported yeah. you sort of how's that transition been? I'm curious about sort of the, the positives and the negatives maybe about that transition. Yeah. I, I think when I wrote that article, I was taking advantage of a time when 
Um, you know, I never want, of course, never wanted anything to reflect negatively on my colleagues and coworkers and, mm-hmm. you know, people that I worked with and, you know, was born and raised at Kansan. And, uh, at the time that like the climate being what it was in our state government, I felt like that was a way I had a perspective to share and I could use that platform to share it. Um, and at the time I was also thinking, so I grew up in a very traditional public school system. That's where I first started teaching. I think you mentioned before there, you teach with like six other biology teachers, uh, like at, freshmen. at least I have four other honors bio teachers. There uh, are, yeah. yeah, I think, I think there's a total of like eight or nine different people who teach some type of biology yeah. course in my school. Yeah. Yeah. It's very similar. Like what I grew up experiencing and what I, uh, taught in Kansas as well. And, um, so I was sort of looking for the challenge of, and I had always sort of talked to Brad about this, like that small school experience of being the only biology teacher, um, sort of getting a say and also getting to work like one-on-one with students. Mm-hmm. Um, I really valued the connections I got to build with my students. And like, especially when I got to have a student like as a freshman in freshman biology, and then I got to see them again in AP biology. Those were always really cool relationships. And mm-hmm. I felt like, um, they could accomplish just so much more because we had already like built that repertoire. They already, I'd come to expect something from them. They knew what to expect from me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of wanted that in my next school system. Uh, also, my values started to sort of shift uh, the more I went to teaching and further into my career. Tracking was like a big issue for me. Mm-hmm. Um, just in the, and, you know, and I, of course, flourished in a system like that. I, you know, it's something you don't think about when it's happening to you all the time, but um, the school I went to, uh, we don't have a tracking system. Uh, we have like an, also an AP for all policy. I mean, so our students kind of like the AVID program. I, I know some schools mm-hmm. have that just the expectation is you are taking AP and it's not necessarily like this sanctioned, like uh, program just for the elite students. Um, so we have very heterogeneous classrooms, uh, students working with each other from varying sets of backgrounds. Um, just with that, and that just like a value that really resonated with me just, um, cause in Kansas, I taught freshman biology, honors biology, uh, like a credit recovery class for life science and then AP biology. So I just saw all these like different windows into kids' lives where I thought, man, what if things had gone different when you were a sixth grader or ninth grade? What if you had actually pushed yourself? Someone had told you to take honors instead of general, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, that's the kind of thing I was looking for, and uh, and then like a smaller environment. That was what I sought out, and we had the luxury, um, my wife and I, to just find a place where we were at a place where we could actually like you know leave Kansas, and <laughs> uh, there's you know other personal reasons that went into it, but that's where yeah. I'm at now. Yeah, it's I mean you t- like as you're talking, there's like all these boxes that sort of check. Um, you know, in my own head, I, you know, I teach in this sort of, you know, juggernaut of a school that's this enormous building and, um, there's huge advantages and huge disadvantages to it. You know, change is, um, you know, I say we're, it's a big giant, like we're a big giant cruise ship and, you know, that's sort of how I feel. And it's like something happens and, you know, if, if things go bad, the nice thing is like, we just keep going. Like it's a, we're going to keep going. We're not going to drive drift off course. It takes a lot to, to change the direction of the school, but at the same time, it takes a lot to change the direction of our school, uh, where if there's, there's a need for change and what you're saying about tracking is, is literally, 
you know, something that I've been thinking a lot about. I know that my department head at this this time, uh, we've had this longstanding policy that our science recs and our math recommendations were linked together. And mm. there was some rationale for that, um, particularly with chemistry, like, well, and sure. physics, like to take a, you know, our honors AP physics, it's a calculus based course. So if you're not in calculus, you, you can't really take that course as a senior. So that's one thing. And then in chemistry, there's a lot of, you know, algebra involved. And so if you're not in, you know, algebra two, you know, it's hard for a student who might be weaker in math in there. But then we had a recommendation for for math for biology. And we could not come up with a justification for why a freshman had to be in honors math other than the fact that, like, it impacted later on the courses that they might take. And so we've gotten rid of that recommendation but at the same time we're like sort of grappling we're grappling with what that means because now we get kids who come in and maybe the kid is like really sort of behind on math because just like you said in sixth grade they came in and they were struggling in math and so now they're a 10th grader going into chemistry and how do you make the recommendation so it's there's a lot of you know I think you're right in the sense that tracking works really well for a certain population of students but it also has this enormous limiting factor for students. And when you go to try to change a system to break up tracking and make more access available, it really is, it really is hard. Um, yeah. I, I love that cruise ship analogy. I mean, there are many days that, you know, like you're saying, like the pros and cons of all that, like uh, for me at the time, like, and it still is like the, the value alignment was something I really like that was really pulling me to the school. Uh, but, you know, there are, of course, also days where, like, it would be nice to be on that cruise ship. And if <laughs> if there's, like, a smoke going off in room 100, you know, whatever, I'm you know, I'm still teaching biology. I'm just doing my thing in my room. And there are days of that, you know, I think back and I'm like, oh, that would feel really nice right now. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, there's uh, somebody was saying to me, like, what one of the – there's a there's a situation where, like – Something happened with a an English teacher earlier in the year. I think they went out on maternity leave, and as they went, they they brought somebody else in, and then that person actually left and went and took a full time there took a full time job, and they brought somebody. And so there was like the person they like are figuring out who the person that's coming in, and it's like the fourth English teacher for this. You know, not a lot of students, but it's like one teacher's yeah. block has had all of these different. Um, you know, turnover. And in a building of 2000, like I happen to know about that, I could guarantee you, I could pull, pull my department and maybe three or four of the other 20 teachers in biology would be aware <laughs> that this has even gone on yeah. in our building yeah. because, you know, we are such a large building and it's, you know, these type of ripples just don't, they don't make waves when you're, yeah. when you're this big a building. Um, so, like, you've talked a little bit about the the shift. So you're, like, talking, you went from a, you could have gone from a, a big giant school in Kansas to a small school in Kansas. And obviously, I, I realize there are the other factors um, that played a role. I, I'm curious about the the support and the network piece um, of of maintaining sort of the, that professional network you had. Uh, I'm just, maybe I'm just being old. Um, as you know, a guy who graduated college in 1996, um, and just take for granted the fact that everybody's already connected. Was it, you know, was it easy to maintain the support and, and the network? And you already had some connections out around the world. Um, did you were you able to maintain that sort of professional network as you as you shifted? Was that was that easy in in this day and age? Yeah, I think yeah, specifically like the day and age of, you know, 
I think Brad first told me about the listserv when I was like a senior and I was just like on the listserv and like thing looked really clunky and then they moved to the discussion board. I'm like, oh yeah, this is way better. I don't know why they didn't do this before. And yeah, so like being in this era of um, connectivity has really helped. And um, something that I appreciate about it that certainly was an unintended consequence, but a positive one was uh, it's really made me rely more on these professional networks that I have. Uh, despite that I'm not actually a Kansas teacher anymore, I still talk to my Kansas Association biology teacher people all the time because <laughs> I built such a tight network there and there's still great biology teachers. So why wouldn't I connect with them? And, uh, the NABT community has meant so much to me. And I think I used to hear that a lot in Kansas from some of the smaller schools. Um, and I think I can kind of see what that feels like now, since I'm the only, uh, biology teacher in my school. Um, those are really like important connections that I have and, um, something that I, I don't necessarily take for granted. Whereas before I, maybe wasn't frequenting the listserv or the discussion board and, you know, the Twitter conversations and the Facebook pages often because, you know, I had all of those like actually in person next to me. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's something in this day and age that that connection is definitely can make a small school environment, uh, not feel so intimidating or so much as a drawback. Yeah, it's funny because I, as I said, you know, I teach in this giant building and when I started teaching AP, I actually very rarely went out of my building because I teach with another AP teacher who was very experienced. And so we became this sort of like echo chamber in the building. And as I said, I have eight other biology teachers in my building that I could reference. But even that at some point, like you realize you now know everybody's opinions, you know, you know, like you're, you're, you're linked culturally to one another. And yeah. so that has the cultural limitations that come in your building start influencing your teaching and your philosophy and your decision making. Whereas if you're connecting to people who are all over the country who teach in these different settings, you view things very differently. Um, it broadens yeah. that perspective. Completely. And I, I think it helps in some ways it kind of, you know, we've talked, I used to talk about this with a lot of uh, the Knowles fellows, um, you know, it feels really risky sometimes to ask the person who you've taught with for six years, who's a door away from you to like come into your class, but suddenly talking about your lessons and failures and things you're trying to improve with a bunch of people on Facebook doesn't seem so much like that. Cause you get to remove some of that context. Whereas uh, you live that every other day. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. That's sometimes felt true for me. Um, so I, I've definitely found that to be another positive, um, through some of the larger networks as well. Yeah, yeah, you you bring up that. And I think in particular when you're early in career, I think the the vulnerability of within your building um, early in your career is much, much greater. Um, oh, yeah. And I think for you mentioned the Knowles, the Knowles fellows in particular, I think that that's sort of the advantage of those type of programs. Um, it's really hard to become, you know, vulnerable, which is really what you have to do when you ask those type of opinion questions to people, uh, to people who could turn and talk to your department head or could talk to other teachers in your building. That's, that's really hard. Yeah, definitely a profession where day one is baptism by fire. Um, yeah. you know, there's, is that, that learning on the job is just part of how it goes. And I think that, I mean, I still always feel like I'm fighting a bit of imposter syndrome, but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, as you said, like, as you get more used to the sharing. And I think 
being connected outside of the school helps sharing be less of a risky thing. Um, I think it has in many ways made me uh, reflect on like what what are the things I do get from my in-person, uh, my collegial reactions or interactions at school that are actually really helpful. It is pretty cool to have AP English teachers and history teachers and so on come into my class and you know really view it from like a context independent uh, standpoint. I've gotten a lot of um, you know, it's hard for a biology teacher to walk into a biology classroom and focus on, hey, what were those, how was the group focused in that class? Like, you're just thinking about the content and hmm. sometimes it's hard to pull yourself away from that. Yeah, I can, uh, I was watching, a, I was watching a chemistry, uh, a, a chemistry lesson last year and I happened to be in an interdisciplinary group and I was totally focused on the chemistry and I yeah. watched the teacher and I thought they did something super elegant with the content. I thought the city set things up really, really well. And then I looked at the other people and I was the only other science teacher in the group. And I looked at all the other teachers and I was like, Oh, they have no idea what just went on. They couldn't <laughs> see, they couldn't see the arc. And I have a, you know, I have a chem minor, I teach AP bio. So I, I have a substantial amount of chemistry background. Like to me, it was like very elegant what was going on, but you're right. The eyes that they were looking on had nothing to do with the, the content side. It was, yeah the student engagement, it was the process, it was what are the students doing throughout this lesson. And probably, I mean, to my detriment, I was not, I was more focused on the art of the of addressing the content. Yeah. I, I went into that place, which is probably like the wrong thing for me doing at this point in my career. Like I know <laughs> that, like I know that part, like I don't need to worry yeah. about that, but I should have been paying more attention to the engagement points and the, you know, the wait time and the student interaction and like all of those other things. And so I can totally understand how being at sea in content may actually help you pick up completely new things in what you're teaching. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's like, it's like the actor going to see another play. It's mm -hmm. hard to turn that part of your brain off. <laughs> Um, so sometimes there's a little freeing to be like, you know what, I'm walking into an AP English class and I, I can't, I just got to listen like a student because I am, I'm not bringing in like any extra pedagogical or like it's all pedagogy. It's, I'm yeah. not bringing in any like content knowledge here. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to be like, but I read this critique. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're not going to, you're not going to get there on there. No way. All right, so uh, we're uh, we're recording this, and this is late March. It's going to be my first April episode. This will come out uh, just after Easter weekend. I think uh, you've probably got concerns about whether or not somebody's going to be playing on uh, on the day this comes out. Um. <laughs> uh -huh, yes, I I will be very intently watching some basketball games. Or really sad, actually. <laughs> I guess on Sunday. I mean, everybody's brackets are blown up at this point, and so when this comes out, people will know this. But I, I hate to say it, but I get total family bragging rights if Kansas is not in the finals. Like it is literally down to, like if Kansas Just advances, I don't win. <laughs> I think if Kansas does, if Kansas wins, I finish in like seventh <laughs> in oh, yeah, my the, family bracket. But oh my God. but yeah, the bracket's been burned for a while. It's just yeah. it's all right. Now. Yeah, but I picked Villanova to win the whole thing, and I'm the ah. only one left. I'm the only one left that had Villanova. So I think I, maybe one other person had Villanova. But if Villanova gets to the next, gets to the finals, I think I win. Like that's how blown everyone's brackets are. Uh, so, so I, not to say that I'm rooting against Kansas, but you know, my mother-in-law will. I'm, my mother-in-law will never let me live it down if she gets to win the family bracket. 
<laughs> Maybe somewhere someday I'll take some small amount of joy if we lose, knowing that someone got something out of that. Yeah, there's nothing. There's no money on the line. It's just bragging rights at this point. So, uh, yeah. although you lie to me and tell me there's like a thousand dollar bet on it. Yeah, I I really, um, in the grand scheme of things, don't care about it except for the fact that I'm gonna have like a one minute conversation with my mother in law who might brag about the fact that she won the bracket this year. Um, <laughs> there's worse things in the world than losing to your mother-in-law in your college bracket so i guess so yeah it's not like it's not like the heyday when i used to go to umass and you know they had a oh, legitimate yeah. team um <laughs> so um yeah i totally lost my train of thought but uh anyway <laughs> i was I gonna mean, talk could, i could fill the other 60 minutes of basketball but you might you might lose the audience there. Yeah, but what I was gonna say is the um, I, I I actually I'm doing better in that than my March Mammal Madness bracket. Um, oh my gosh, that was <laughs> that one's that was more busted for me. Yeah, my March Mammal bracket. I had uh I had the the Cape Town baboon going deep, and that uh that didn't that didn't go so well for me. So, um, uh, but uh so Villanova is my last hope to, of looking at decent at any brackets this year. Uh, but as I was I was going to say, this time of year makes me think about two different things. So one is you know getting my students to sort of that finish line of of the AP exam, um, and then other end of course exams which are which are coming up. Although really end of course exams to me are less of a driver. Uh, but the AP is I mean when we're recording this, we're less than seven weeks from from the AP. Yeah. You know not to yeah. stress you out at the, about that, but um, you know, and so that's one thing that's on my mind. The other is lining up my summer PD. Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to learn in the summer? So I guess my question to you is like, where, what's your, where's your head? What are you focused on in heading into this like final quarter of the year and heading into summer? So I always feel like I tell myself every year, Camden, you're not going to do fill an entire summer of PD because that's <laughs> why if you're going to take some benefit from being, you know, a teacher with a summer that, you know, everyone's like, oh, your summers are off. And I always wince at that. And I'm sure most of the listeners here wince at that too, <laughs> because I'm not quite sure what a summer off looks like. I definitely haven't really experienced that. Um, and it always just accidentally seems, I look at my calendar later, I'm like, oh, dang, did I really sign up for like all these different PDs and or volunteer to do this? So um, yeah, I unfortunately, I don't get to go to the AP biology reading. Mm -hmm. um, I've really grown to enjoy going to that because it's just sort of like that mini it's like getting like the warm-up for nabt and um it happened this year just to coincide with our last day of school or our last week of school and it used to be for us always the week afterwards um so it always had been a perfect sort of like ending to the school year and then get to go uh well for me back home kansas city and then also to see all the biology crew so i'm kind of actually really bummed about that this year um End of the year exams actually for Washington changed this year. It's kind of bizarre with the NGSS uh, assessments coming out in Washington. We're in this sort of mid lane. Next year is like the first year that they're really counting. And this year they're doing some pilot exams. Um, so it's kind of bizarre to also not be preparing the freshmen for <laughs> an exam as well. Um, and I know a lot of the upperclassmen have been just giving them so much heck about that. <laughs> I mean, it was like that I had just given them this gift and I, they don't really listen when I tell them, like, you know, I didn't decide that they're not going to get tested on this. But, <laughs> um, yeah, at the end of the year, I'm going to be working um, with some other teachers in the Nulls Teacher Initiative. Um, we're looking at complex instruction in science. So complex instructions uh, generally originate in the math education world. Mm -hmm. It's uh, looking at 
addressing issues of equity and the in the classroom so group worthy tasks tasks that involve like authentic group engagement um sort of moving beyond like what we traditionally think of like note taker and recorder and mm. you know team captain and things like that and actually like working with tasks that like uh, you know like sort of people have used i'm sure with like pogol or some of the hhmi resources um and then seeing that through the lens of how do we like move students towards either like building them up through content or building them up socially in the classroom because we know so often our classroom dynamics they're not just who knows what but like who is seen as like having or not having social capital mm. uh, so using both of those um, to sort of like push uh, student engagement forward um, and there's been so much done in the math world I mean like uh, Joe Bowler and all this and it's been done in Stanford for decades and we're trying to get use some of that to transfer into the science world um, so I'm excited to be doing some work with that uh, that'll definitely keep me busy throughout the summer so I'm curious are you looking at um, sort of like a, within those roles are you looking at I, I'm a familiar with it in the Pogel standpoint. So like I'm putting yeah. my hat, my hat on that, like, all right, I've got my students now we're doing Pogel. I've got these different roles. I assign these different roles. Um, are we looking at like helping students like grow within those roles and achieve sort of proficiency within those roles? Or are we looking at um, making sure that those roles, I, I guess that's the question. Like, where, yeah. how does that fit in? Is it a case where I have some, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of like soft skills that are associated with those roles mm -hmm. and helping students sort of gain metacognition about what they do well and their areas that they need to grow? Is that, is that a fair assessment or how, tell me, tell me where I'm wrong? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I think um, part of what we talk about in like designing tasks that are group worthy, we also think about, um, what what is what is authentically asked of a task um and so i'm sure and I, i've done this before like specifically thinking about the ap biology labs you know it could be things as simple as like i don't know why i ever had six students do this like auger cube diffusion in a group like that's ridiculous <laughs> that was like too many children around these little cubes and um so it's just thinking about how do we get like students to engage like in a task that feels like they have like a like you're saying they're using some of these soft skills but they're using them in a way that's like necessary for that task particularly. Um, and then also thinking about those skills can be a way to like elevate or like highlight certain like content or like social status. Uh, mm. And that, you know, if we're thinking about every single student in the classroom at every single moment, and we're trying to raise every single student's like status all at the same time, that would like go that would make me go crazy as a teacher to like track all 30 kids and like trying to get them all moving at once. But, you know, if certain days are focused on like the students who are generally like the ones who aren't the first ones to ask, like, Hey, I don't understand this. The ones who can typically get left behind, you know, leaving them as like the facilitator of the group, making them be the ones who have to like check to make sure the group is on task, like moving some of the students who might not have like that social capital to a place where, they're suddenly like more responsible for what the group is accomplishing. Um, just thinking about those like targeted ways to kind of move, you know, it's like, it's all like a game of chess, mm -hmm. but kind of moving students around. Uh, yeah. To ultimately 
get students to increase their opportunities to engage with science content. Yeah. And then you also, I mean, you started by calling this complex instruction. So I, I imagine this involves oh, yeah. sort of the... I don't like that word necessarily. Well, it I, is what it does. But I mean, if it is complex instruction, that means also being similar to what you said to start the mindful of the mindful of the tasks that are going to be at hand for any given mm -hmm. instruction. So you don't just default to, we have, you know, for me, AP biology, I have four, I have six lab tables. So I have three or four students at the lab tables, depending on how many kids are in the room. But rather I go for this task, it needs, we need teams of three for yeah. this task. We need teams of four and then really having those tasks be authentic to the point where there isn't like, a materials gatherer because I really didn't have a fourth thing yeah. for them to do um, so that there's a little bit more balance and equity and that the student who and the students are trying on different roles in sort of a mindful way, building themselves throughout the throughout their dynamic within that group. Yeah. And and I think a lot of that also then creates a system where it's not divide and conquer, but like divided we learn more. Mm -hmm. Or not divided we learn more, but like to get like we're using these roles to like come to a better understanding than if we had just done this on our own. Yeah, complementary, uh -huh. complementary completion of task. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and yeah, it's just relooking at like how group work. And I know for some teachers that, and for me for a long time, group work was often that scary thing. Or if I think way further back to as a student, like oh, there's group work is all dependent on am I the one doing all the work or do I have some other people who are going to do it with me? And, um, it's trying to really, like you said, critically think about, um, when we actually use that as a tool. Yeah, this is a, this is, you've, you've hit obviously on something that like is a little bit of a, is a place where I've got a lot of discomfort, <laughs> I guess maybe the best way of saying it. Like I do a lot of things in groups. Um, and I, um, I have consistently throughout my career been bailed out by uh, quality students um, by how sloppily I've assigned, assigned group work. Um, <laughs> I mean, just to, to put it bluntly, I have phenomenal students year in, year out, um, particularly in my honors and my AP students. Um, I get away with I get away with really just assigning them with fairly mindlessly, just having sort of rote organizations and then becoming pretty good at like culture building within the class. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of have always relied on strong classroom culture and quality students to make up for any lack of mindfulness I've had in my <laughs> group assignments. Yeah. Um, when I think you hit on a big piece of it too, that I didn't mention, but like culture is like definitely can create that like, a place where like groups can like flourish um, a culture of not only like respect, but uh, taking risks mm -hmm. um, and like communication and things like that are ones that really do get developed. Um, well, you know, directly or indirectly um, through the teacher and through the students of what is allowed to happen and not allowed to happen in a classroom. So I think a lot of it's, you know, it's, I think it always comes back to just good teaching is good teaching. Uh, it's just a way of seeing how all those can interplay uh, to affect things like group work. Yeah, I guess that for me, it's um, it's that normal factor of it works until it doesn't, and then when it doesn't, yeah. you realize where the holes are. Um, yep. And I've had I've had to make some adjustments personally where I've been dissatisfied with some of the group interactions, um, 
And some of that, I think, is on student accountability and making sure that there is a student accountability component to it. Um, but I don't I've always felt like that's just not enough because they're students and they're teenagers and they need to be trained how to be yeah. accountable. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in continuing to hear about this uh, because uh, this is an area where I certainly have been playing around with things, but it's certainly an area I could get better at um, coming up with a more mindful approach to group work. Um, well, yeah, the goal is that we are able to share more of this uh, freely and throughout the entire like biology science teaching community where I'm definitely still a learner in this as well. It was something that, like you're saying, like kind of is always running through my head when I'm doing group work and trying to do better. So I thought, I guess if I really want to do better, I should try to teach teachers about it. And, and that's going to really force me to make sure I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I'm ex looking forward to that. Uh, what is it? NABT 2019 presentation you make. Uh, yeah. Uh, Sessions <laughs> are in. Hopefully this does not affect whether it's accepted or not. <laughs> oh, did you submit for 2018? Uh, oh, yeah. What I, oh, is this yeah, for San Diego? Yeah. Submitted for 2018 San Diego. Oh, wow. All right. So you don't see it. Every I definitely called my shot and everyone knows <laughs> that. I'm supposed to be up there. Well, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting because I I think it's one of those kind of things where even if it wasn't accepted, like this is something that you can reiterate back on and get more feedback, yeah. and it's gonna it, it's gonna be an evergreen topic. It's not like group work is not something you could present like the following year go. or the following year. Like, yeah. can you just share that with the selection committee? Yeah, you want me? To, I'll text Ryan right now. Um. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, and it's only in our the my region's back door of the or backyard of uh, San Diego. So yeah. it'll, it'll look especially nice if the regional coordinator's just walking around with no sessions. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to San Diego. I will tell you that. That's uh, I've never been yeah. down there. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I think it'll definitely be really nice. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, Kansas City was a little cold. Um. <laughs> yeah. It, it gets cold, and then in June it gets earth-blazingly hot yeah well oh, i was thinking st louis sorry st louis st louis is where we were last year oh yeah kansas city we won't get a cool train just ruining <laughs> conversations every like 15 minutes ruining conversations <laughs> that's a loud train that was. just ran on through that <laughs> i'll tell you what it was super cool the first time yes it was kind of it was, it was kind of cool the second time <laughs> um yeah. No, I went out and ran the looks I got when I got back from my runs in the morning because I would get up and I'd run out and run down to the arch and then run back. And, I, you know, I live in Massachusetts, so it was like upper 30s, which we call shorts weather, you know, like um, <laughs> I wore a hat and gloves and stuff like that. Yeah. But me walking back into the lobby and the looks I got from people that when I was coming back into my shorts, <laughs> from my, like, what are you doing? <laughs> So most of the day, one day it was cool. It was like, it was, there was windy. It was windy down there by the, by the river. But for the most part, it was not too bad, but I think San Diego will be a touch warmer. Um, it's just, I don't know. People say it's really nice. So we'll yeah. have to just find out. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. All right, so we talked about talked uh, touched upon a bunch of different topics here, but um, we sort of went more in that sort of professional sphere. But in your classroom specifically, what are, what are you looking forward to in the next couple of years? What are you looking to to implement or changes or you know what what gets you excited about your classroom in the next few years? Well, I think for one, it's like the continuing of some of that group work, the those things I was talking about. I'm also so I teach at a project based school. And I've always, I think it's every now and then it kind of pops up as AP biology, 
or maybe even just AP sciences, can you really do like a project based <laughs> AP class? Um, and I think there is actually like, I would, I would be fascinated just to get, um, you know, like so many of the people you've interviewed in a room, just hear what they've dabbled in and what they think about it. Cause you know, we evolved from the redesign where it was just, uh, so much content. Now we'll feel like there is more time to focus and we are focusing more on the science practices. And then, so it seems to, it wants to lend itself to project based instruction. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, but there's still that like, yeah, but there is also still a lot to cover. Mm. There's just not an insane amount anymore. And um, so that's something that I think I don't have answers for it. Um, I definitely play with it. Um, that's something I'm interested in. I think just bringing in more authentic science and uh, bringing in the science practices relevant to, uh, I think, more of what students are engaged in. I think that's like an example of being like, I think, we have a lot of students who take AP environmental science. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that generally uh, students are can see their themselves connected to the environment. Um, politically, it's definitely a, um, it's really relevant to a lot of our students specifically like in the Northwest and probably everywhere. Uh, so I, I think students see that as like more relevant. And I wonder, I've seen a lot of, in my freshman biology classes, I've seen a lot of, um, higher student engagement with uh, more of my classes when we're doing a lot of those like project-driven units. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I just want to. I feel like there's got to be something there. So that's always been something in the back of my head. Yeah. Um, that full project-based AP biology curriculum. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, you're you're like you're you're preaching to the choir on this one. But I'm gonna first say we need to uncover material. Um, because I had Cheryl Hollinger on my last time and she called uh, me on yeah. that. And I was like, you know, uncovered. she's absolutely right. We don't cover things. We don't make yeah. them hidden. We uncover them. So I'm just going to show my own learning on that. When you said it, it pinged. And I was like, why did that ping? Oh, that's right. My last episode, I interviewed right. Cheryl and she called me on that same language. So, um, no, I, I completely, this, you've now hit exactly what I want to do this summer. Like I want to, I want to take uh, my class and I want to turn it into eight questions and I want to make eight yeah. storylines. I want to make eight storylines, maybe six storylines. I want to make, I think eight is reasonable sort of within the arc of my year. And then within those storylines, just have an arc and say like, you know, um, should we eliminate mosquitoes and ticks from the environment to stop, um, uh, to, to stop diseases? Like that, I'd like, that's my opening question. And then, and then within that, we've got all of the ecological interactions um, we've got all of the biotechnology that we can do with that. Um, we can do a lot, some human body stuff because um, there's there's definitely some, some connections there. Uh, we can do some cellular connections. We can talk about toxins. We can talk about immune system. We could do all of those arcs. And then so that's sort of unit one. And then, you know, maybe we ask a question, you know, should we be eating? You know, like if we're going to eat animals, we should be eating um, insects or lab grown meat. You know, yeah. like, you know, like should 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 we abandon modern day, you know, uh, modern day meat and only eat insects or lab grown meat, like something provocative like that. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, again, you get all these topics from evolution to ecology to, um, you know, to interactions and these different uh, different types of things. And then obviously sort of the, the tried and true ones, you know, you can look at antibiotic resistance, antibiotic resistance just hits all of these components and then. Look at the HHMI resources that you have for um, all sorts of different topics. So I think that 
having a series of integrative type, you know, questions could absolutely be the way that you go about doing it. Um, in a project-based school, I think you actually may find it easier. Um, you, you gotta, yeah. you gotta keep in mind. I, I, I live, you know, my students, as I said, they, they eat the you know, multiple choice exams for breakfast. They like, <laughs> they, they <laughs> like, I, I have a question that like, but what page of Campbell is this going to be on is going to be an issue I'm going to have if yeah. I flip my class into that model. But that's the way I want my AP class to be. So I love that. I, yeah, if only I wish I could just go back to that, the AP leadership Academy and just like take these thoughts and just like live it year after year, trying to develop all this. I, I the idea of storylines is I think exactly where I think, I mean, where I think they are arguing AP biology and, science classes should be going and I think you're right there is something there yeah well I'm gonna I will keep talking this year but um that's cool. my plan is to try to get there that's I love that that's that's eventually that's eventually my goal um I have convinced my as I've said this in the last couple of episodes I've convinced my colleague that we're gonna blow up our class and we're gonna teach there it totally go. differently ne next year because I still as much as I've I've moved to a, a flip blended model in in honors um in our honors class where we you know we've done these videos and it not that it's perfect it's just it's another way of going and it's provided yeah. a lot more time to do interactive stuff in class and um, i found personally i find it very freeing um and i'm very much a i'm a convert to this and not everybody on my team is 100 percent on board and they're putting up some some reasonable critiques of our switch um I think that we're it's the we're going the right direction there. And then I go into my EP class and go, all right, so you guys have homework and you're outlining from here to here in Campbell. Yeah. And like I still feel that I'm very, even though I don't think most people would come into my AP class and say, yeah, you're super traditional. I feel very traditional. I still feel like that I'm anchored to Campbell and that the way I teach is based off of that book. Um, and that's I want to get away from that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're hitting on so much, and I, I, it is so funny that I think, and I'm, I would imagine many teachers can uh, would resonate with this. Like, I, I also have like a flip classroom um, set up where students are doing a lot of a lot of like the content delivery is happening through like videos and mm -hmm. online resources like that. But it's so easy to think, oh, how can I can how can I do this for like this group of kids? And then the other classroom, like, oh, I, I don't know if I can do it for this group, like. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not that I don't think I could do it. It's a case that like, well, there's a couple of things. One, it's a, it's a crap load of work. I mean, I mean, it's just yeah, when you have a, would... when you have a class that's set up and it works to change the way you do it is it's, you know, like all you do is like you make one little change and then all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, like this has the impact on this grade and has this impact on this grade. And, um, you know, like, I, I completely Trojan horsed the flip model with my colleagues. I made all of the videos for the four, first four units of the year um, to start the year. Like I started them over the summer and I'm like, I think we should be doing this and we should be giving the kids choice for homework so they could either outline the book or do the videos or make them do a combination of them every unit. And they're like, oh, great, because <laughs> I did them for the first like three months of the year. And then I'm like, and then at that point, we'll all make one video a unit because there's four of us. So it's actually not that much work. And now, like, yeah. it's distributed. So, like, yeah, it takes me, you know, an hour every unit to make one of our learning objective videos. But we had already aligned all of our learning objectives. So all of our units yeah. have learning objectives. All of the tests are based off those learning objectives. So making those videos was super easy. So now it's like, all right, I want to go to this project-based model. 
So what does that mean? It means that I've got to figure out what my learning objectives are going to be for each of those project questions. So then I have to yeah. make the alignment there. Then I have to figure out, well, what's the content that would be flipped in that question? So, all right. So, all right, I'm not going to, I'm going to be lazy. I'm not going to make the resources myself. I'm just going to go steal them from Paul Anderson because why wouldn't you just steal all Paul's stuff? All right. So videos are done. Um, <laughs> all right. Yeah. So now what are the textbooks? So now I got to figure out what all the textbook options are for the students who want to make that choice or want the extra mm -hmm. resource. All right. So now what's the storyline? All right. Now what's my arc of lessons? And then you like you do that out. You can do it, but it's not an in, it's not an insignificant amount of time to yeah. do that, and then make sure that you you are uncovering all of the concepts to prepare them for next May. Um. <laughs> Your colleagues are still on this already, right? They're not listening to this. Oh no, they don't. They they, they barely pay attention. No, a couple of them. Do. <laughs> a couple of them do. Um, and so the like, they accept me. Yeah. Blow they, up being used with them. <laughs> well, the, and the funny thing is, is that I've been there so long and I have built those trusting relationships with them that I'm able to be authentically me with my yeah. colleagues, um, which is, you know, takes time. Um, every, oh, yeah. every once in a while, I will meet with an administrator in our building and we'll have a conversation and they're like, so, so how do you like, how is it you guys collaborate so well? And I was like, we're like an old married couple. We've been together, so, <laughs> you know, we've been together so long that we've got, you know, I was saying this just the other day, like every once in a while, like, you know, Brian, we, we do this big project where we send all of our kids out on job shadows and AP. And it's like, it's a bear. It's a, it's an enormous, I mean, we're talking about nearly a hundred kids every year on over 20 job shadows all over Eastern Massachusetts, central Eastern Massachusetts. And it's a bear of work. And sometimes he works slower than I would work and he doesn't get all of his paperwork in the right order. And like he gets it all done. But I said to him, it's like, no matter how much you aggravate me, there is no doubt in my mind he's going to get it done. Like I 100 yeah. percent trust he's going to get it done. So even when I'm like snapping at him, like, why isn't this done? Da, 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 I, it's, he knows that there's no malice in it. And I told him that the other day. I was like, you know that I 100 percent know you're going to get this done. You're just frustrating me right now. <laughs> That's a married couple. Yeah. That, and he and I do the same thing to him in other ways. Like I. I am. I come in and say, instead of this lab, why don't we do, you know, it'd be like the day before. And he's like, he's like, uh, but what about this? And we ordered, I'm like, I'll make all the plates. Don't worry about it. But I think it's going to be this. He's like, all right, slow down. Explain to me what you're <laughs> thinking. So, you know, I'm not exactly the easiest guy to work with in the world because I like, I'm a tinkerer and a button pusher and I am never satisfied with anything. Um, so like they accept, I think most people accept that. And they're also good enough colleagues to tell me, to call me when I go too far. Um, and I also know that about myself that, you know, hey, sometimes I want to do 12 changes and, you know, in your own mind when you're home and you're planning, you're like, oh, sure. I'm going to change this. Oh, and then I'll change this and I'll change that. And you go and you tell your colleagues and they look at you like, are you nuts? Um, and, you know, to be able to read the signs to say, yeah, they're right. That's not a reasonable amount of work to do. Um, so we actually just had a moment like that where we had been talking about making some project changes and we all kind of looked at each other and went, yeah, next year. Uh, <laughs> this is a perfect thing for 2018, perfect. 2019. <laughs> so that's, that's a real, that, that takes, that takes time to develop the, the next year approach. Yeah. 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 It's, it's hard. It's hard when you get like, yeah. it, it, when you get like a lot of positive momentum and you're like excited about something to be able to like, talk through the logistics of something and slow yourselves down as a group and say, all right, this is a really good idea, but we're just not going to get that done. We're not going to be able to deliver a quality product to our kids if we try to pull this through. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm very lucky, very fortunate all the time that I get to work with these guys. So 
It'll be nice. Nice team. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, let's talk about you not in the classroom. When you're not teaching, what do you like to do? Well, I'm a nice benefit of moving to the Northwest, and I say this, and it's Seattle's giving me the exact weather I asked for it, which is it's sprinkling right now, and it's <laughs> I can't see the sky. Um, but uh, I there's so much to explore outdoors, which as a biologist, um, and growing up in Kansas, I now I will like fight tooth and nail that uh, the Midwest and the plains have like some of the most beautiful nature that I mean I, I could go on and on about that, but <laughs> I so I often like shudder when people are like, oh, have you ever driven on like I seventy? It's just cornfield and cornfield and cornfield. I'm like, but the prairie plants and the, the, the never mind. I have to stop myself because mm -hmm. I see those in different ways. But um, going on lots of hikes around here um actually just i've gotten into this year i got scuba certified oh wow which if you've ever tried to scuba dive in kansas is hard <laughs> uh i'm sure there's you can make an olympic sport out of that but uh now i will say cold water diving is a unique challenge it's not exactly the uh, hawaii vacation that uh, i might have imagined when i thought of scuba diving originally but um, that's been really fun, just like exploring a whole nother ecosystem underwater. And uh, yeah, like that, that has been really cool for me and something I am hoping to explore uh, more this summer. So while it is cold, it is still warmer in the summer and I'm a big baby. And uh, my wife works at an aquarium and she goes diving year round in a wetsuit. So she's like super tough. And it turned October and I was like, no, no, I'm not going down there. It's cold. Uh, but that's something I'm looking forward to explore more this year. Well, I, I open water swim out here sometimes, particularly in oh, the cool. summer. And I, I wear a wetsuit all year round. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. Like I never, and I've got friends, you know, some friends while I go there and I, I tell them that I wear no, I'm, oh, I always wear the wetsuit because I'm not a strong swimmer. I'm a, I'm a reasonably strong swimmer, but I, I always say I'm not a strong enough swimmer and I like the little extra buoyancy it gives me, which is completely yeah. true. Uh, when you're doing yeah. like, when you're doing a one mile swim, that, that little extra buoyancy you get out of the, 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 the suit is is nice, um, yeah. But I'm also like, it's cold. It's cold up here. The water's really always cold, cold up here. Uh, I was gonna say you can't be that much warmer over there. No, we're not. In uh, the the in the middle of the summer, there are points where you'll get the lake. The lakes will warm up to the point where, uh, but like, yeah. yeah, it's pretty much you. We're pretty much wetsuit legal for triathlons all year long. In oh wow, yeah, yeah like you can triathlon with in a wetsuit. I did a triathlon in like. It was either late June or early July. It might have been early July. I didn't in, in uh, out on the Cape, and it, it was wetsuit legal. Um, so like, it doesn't get warm. It doesn't get warmer. I mean, now, mind you, it was tolerable. I probably could have gone gotten away with, you know, not not doing the wetsuit. It wasn't so yeah. cold that you could, but it was still within regs to to wear the wetsuit. So totally so warm. It's still, still pretty cold, yeah. even even there. Um, we go down and do vacation down on the Jersey Shore, um, and it's like amazing how much warmer the water is down there than it is up up in New England, up on the Cape. Um, so I should have told that to Desi when she was picking on me when I told her because she's from New Jersey, and oh. <laughs> she was like, she was like, why would anybody go to the Jersey Shore when you can go to Cape Cod? And I I didn't even think of that at the time, but absolutely, the water is so much warmer, water. yeah, <laughs> down there. So even though it is nicer on Cape Cod. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, it's been a nice benefit too. Uh, they told us once we got scuba certified up here, then once you go without the wetsuit or 
without even a dry suit because we have a lot of dry suit divers up here, mm-hmm. especially the uh, open one or the deep divers. Mm. Uh, it certainly it, it makes everything after that very easy because then you don't have to worry about all maintaining like all the belts and the buoyancy of your dry suit versus yourself and <laughs> how much you're breathing in and out and yeah, you know, all that stuff. And, yeah. Huh. Uh, that, so that's my goal is get really good here and then then go back to like Hawaii and yeah. feel like really good at it. Yeah. I went to, uh, my wife and I went to St. Kitts um, and oh, Nevis yeah. on our honeymoon. And that's apparently like a diver's paradise because in between the two islands, there's like a ton of shipwrecks. So we went snorkel. Yeah. We went snorkeling there, um, in there. But apparently, it's like that's it's a divers' paradise. Like divers go there on vacations all the time. So maybe put that in your list of places, Caribbean cool. places, St. Kitts and Nevis. So, um, so yeah, it's a pretty cool diving spot. There's a lot of dive parks up here. They like little sink boats, um, which is really cool. It's also like fascinating how fast they are just populated by a lot of the uh, native creatures here. Like. I, we, I mean, we saw they had like sunk a ship last year, and there was already, um, oh, I think I think it was like a wolf field that was already like a juvenile wolf fields were going in there. I'm just thinking like this thing just like popped up out of nowhere, and now they're living you know it's already inhabited. So wow, cool. that's pretty cool. All right, so before we get to any uh, our picks of the week, do you have any questions for me? Okay. I do, and well, I know we had sort of talked about this a little bit before we started airing or recording. Um, so I didn't really discover the podcast until David Kanuffy was on, mm-hmm. um, and then recent I actually listened to. So Anne um, is uh, she does some uh, work with the Knowles Teacher Initiative. So obviously, I mean, she's an amazing person I knew already, and I've gotten to know her more through there. And Cheryl, I. Now that you called me on the cover uncover thing, <laughs> I probably should admit that I actually listened to that. Uh, and she also being in my region and being just the state below me will probably shudder that I already used that. And within like a couple of days of listening to her, I just forgot it. That's so, all right. It's... Being a really good student. Um, but then I stopped and I thought, you know, if I listen to too many of these, I might actually respond and be like, Aaron, never mind. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> uh, just because. I had seen the episode list and every amazing AP rock star under the sun on the list. I thought the more I listened, I don't want to try to compare myself to them. Um, but at the same time, I'm curious. Um, and so forgive me if like these have been asked before, what is the most surprising answer you've ever gotten from someone um, from like generic questions that you've been asking them? Is there anything that sticks out? Um, yeah, I mean, I was talking to somebody about this just the other day, like, there's so many like little moments that I've had, where, like, you know, even things that I still think back about. And so, um, I guess one of the one of the things that came up to me early was I was talking to, um, uh, to somebody who I it was Joanne, um, really on Joanne Purdy, who actually teaches in Massachusetts. And Something she said, I don't try to remember even the question that I asked her, but she was talking to me about how the fact that biology is a language based subject mm-hmm. and that students need to talk and they need to say the words and they need to listen to the words. And if they're not talking and they're not listening to the words, it the course doesn't have meaning. And it was early on in the course, but I would say of all of the things that I've 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 heard as a response to anything I've asked, 
that was the thing that's like it really it's a hundred percent what i agree with but i never had put that Mm. into context like i never thought about that um and i don't mean to take anything away from the fact that like I now understand what a hypothesis is because of Paul Strode uh, <laughs> or that um, like that Ryan Reardon makes me think differently about like so many different things or that John Darko has totally twisted my view of models like and what a model is and how modeling, you know, how modeling works and um, the value of, of of thinking of modeling in different ways. Um, and the questions you can derive and build off of a model, um, any of those things. But I think like in terms of like early shifts that I got and that has probably had the most impact on my teaching and the way I approach what I do and the work I do with students day in, day out, those words from Joanne early on, like, like really resonate. It makes me think about like, it's one thing to say, I don't want to be a teacher centered like teacher. Like I want my students to be talking. I want I want the classroom to be based off of the students' language. But to say the it has to be student centered because the students have to be saying things. They have to be listening and talking to each other and using the words in context. Otherwise, you're not allowing them to experience the subject of biology because it is so language based. Is yeah. is pretty profound. Um, so I don't know if that 100 answers your question, but because I sort of twisted yeah. a little bit, but. No, I, that's uh, what I'm looking to. And I, it's interesting. I think about that a lot too. When, you know, I think that challenge of like, you know, humans are such social learners mm-hmm. and like, yeah, like, I think you're right. Like there's this argument that not like, oh, this is what we want, but like, this is what it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, yeah, it's interesting. But it, you know, it's funny. I was having this moment as I was, um, so we're doing state testing for English this week. So we have a bizarre schedule, which is a, late start for non-sophomores um so the sophomores come in and they take their state testing in the morning because that's when they have to take it and then the everybody else comes in at 10 23 and then they do they go to all their classes for 21 minutes with passing period it's like this sprint through the day and we just piloted a new possible schedule that we're looking at for two years from now because we're a variety of things. We're moving to a later start and we're going to have to change our schedule. So we're piloting a schedule recently. And in those pilot schedules, we had these long periods. So in the span of the last three weeks, we've had everything from 21 minute periods to 87 minute periods that we've experienced with our students. So not normal. This is not like the way the world really works in our school, but it's made me think a lot about the way we've talked about the classes. And there is a, a language of classroom efficiency that comes out in a lot of these conversations. Like there are efficient ways to presenting content and efficient ways of getting through there. And there is this, this, um, I don't know if it's like just the, the punk rock in me, but like, I don't want like efficiency doesn't seem like the right word. Like efficiency doesn't seem right. Like that I have to maximize my minutes with my classes. And that's not to say that coded for something. Yeah. Like, like they have to be like busy, like, like there's almost like a busyness. And I feel like that some of the language that we use, and I don't mean to add intentionality to anybody because I think that this is not, this is not being said by anyone directly, but I do think that the interpretation of some of like the, mock block plannings that they've rolled out and like how do you plan a class that goes this long and i i just look at it and i was like 
it was very formulaic. It's like this is how we write a pop song. We start with this and then we do this. <laughs> it's like it's like I don't I don't, I don't want a formula. I want to know like what are the metrics I should be using to help my students learn. And sometimes for I almost want to think it like what does this particular group of students need? Does this group that I have in my fourth period are they a group that really responds well to like many transitions quickly because they're kind of an antsy group and they kind of need to get up and transition or are they the kind of group that is kind of quiet and would respond really well to like a long read and like quiet reflection and that sort of thing. And I know that every group should be able to experience all of those things, but I should think that I should be tailoring the the tempo and the pacing of my classes more to the needs of the community that I have at every period than I should be thinking about it in a formulaic way. So, yeah, I, that's, I mean, that's a whole another tangent to go down, but I, I coming from 50 minute classes with like one 90 minute block a week to now I have all 90 minute blocks. Mm -hmm. uh, transitions are like such a, I mean, there's so many more now and like, it is like definitely part of like the toolbox that I'm using all the time. And I think, you're right like looking at you know those transitions like really set you up for like what are we actually moving to is this is this a hard transition is this a soft one or it's like is it good that we like kind of wind down with like a metacognitive moment do we need to like amp up because we're about to do this other you know we're about to be talking to each other it's yeah it just opens up a whole new art um not just based on the students but based off like how much time you have mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Going back to like 21 minutes is obviously probably like you were saying, not a real thing that you'll do, but um, even going back to 45 minutes, I, I try to think about that. I'm like, I don't know how I even got them settled down for taking my freshman class. Well, I, I went from, I went from nineties to 47s and I remember walking in and like thinking, this is like jazz. Like, I don't need to plan this at all. I got a slide deck ready. <laughs> like, I got like, you know, you're, you're, we're not talking like, you know, 17 years ago, but it was like, I got like my notes ready and I've got them ready and I'm just going to 47 minutes. I can just do notes for 47 minutes. Like, I don't really need to, you don't really need to plan anything for this, particularly with like <laughs> honors kids. Like I could just throw content at them for 47. And I, truth be told, I think that the block, the 47 minute blocks really hurt my, my thinking about transitions and thinking about diversity of, of approaches and, you know, content versus process and all that, because I think it's easy to fall into the content trap when you teach in those blocks. Um, sure. And yeah. I think it really did. It took me a long time to break out of that. And that's not to say that I wasn't dissatisfied, but it's like, it is really easy to, to just grind through content in those kind of blocks. Yeah. You can stretch for 40 teachers. Teachers can do it for 47 minutes. So I, I totally get where you're, yeah. yeah. And I will also say it's, it's, it is a, you know, like try to do, I, I, I know there are people who do it, try to do a Pogel in a 45 or 47. Like yeah. it's om you, a couple of them you can do, but most of them you find that like, Oh, if I just had yep. eight more minutes, if I just had, you know, like even some of them, it's like, if I had three more minutes, I would have gotten there uh, with those classes. And I definitely had, uh, I did a Pogel um, in one of my, we had, one of my long blocks, I did a pogle and what, and I said it and I was like, it was glorious. And my, one of my colleagues who had tried the pogles with me earlier in the year had turned to me and he's like, Oh, you did a po That's so smart. Like I always run out of time, you know, like you're always like trying to wrap it up the next day. Cause you didn't quite yeah. get to the end or you couldn't get them to reflect. Like it was, it was awesome. 
Nice. So, and that's so. usually the best part is that last like, oh shoot, if I only had eight minutes, we could really bring it all home. Yeah, yeah. And I've and I it's it's one of the downsides of of the classes we have. So I'm looking forward to the fact I don't know what we're gonna adopt, and I'm not sure that the pilot schedule we piloted is gonna be the one we go to, but I think whatever we do, there will be some some long blocks involved. So I'm I'm looking forward to longer than forty seven on a regular basis. So, so. <laughs> All right, so let's transition to picks of the episode. Uh, Camden, what's your pick? So I'm going to shamelessly steal my wife's pick. <laughs> and so she is working on her master's in bio uh, with a conservation focus. Mm -hmm. And the last weekend she spent at the Northeast Pacific Shark Symposium. I think I said that right. Which is a very bizarre way to think of ourselves as the Northeast <laughs> Pacific because yeah. they're thinking through an ocean standpoint. Um, yeah. Which, that's funny. But so it's experiment.com. I know. Has this been shared before? No, this is a new one for so me. I, when she told me experiment.com, I'm like, wait, wait that's, that can't be it. That has to be taken by someone. How's <laughs> experiment.com not taken yet? Um, it's essentially GoFundMe, but for scientific research. Huh. Um, so it's you can actually... Uh, go to experiment.com and it's all like crowdfunding scientific research. Uh, they have a panel of, um, so they, they will peer review the research that gets submitted to them. Um, so there's like a, there's a, you know, a vetting process before it gets posted. Um, and so you'll look at it and it's, you know, just like, like you're a part of, you know, selecting where, to, like what kind of research do you want to get funded? Hmm. Um, and it's usually not, you know, I, I felt very icky at first. I'm like, oh, my God, is this where science funding has come to? It's just like we, we just need the public to fund it or we're done. Um, but usually it's some some startup money for some other projects that labs are trying to do. It's not usually like you're funding like an entire lab or they're going to go under. Um, but there's really cool things. And I think because it has um, this open platform, this, you know, Internet, uh, well, you know, like the GoFundMe sort of uh, setup. There's a lot of citizen science components to the research, even just through like clicking through the top ones today, um, where they, they make a lot of their research open access. And they even have like a badge system where it gets like a little badge that says like all of their research will be publicly available. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not going to be behind a paywall, which is cool. And um, it's really cool just to click through them. I already found one today that was about I could do a citizen science project where I could go. Uh, hike up into Mount Rainier uh, rainforest and look at uh, uh, wildflowers and like help them track those. There was like a crowdsource. Uh, they were funding like being able to bring researchers up there to like uh, be with like the citizen scientists who come up. Um, it's really cool. Experiment.com. Um, I think full disclosure, it's like GoFundMe. It is for profit. I think they take like 5% of what ends up getting raised but it looks pretty cool that does look cool i'll have to play around with that a little bit all right all right so i'm gonna plug uh one of my former colleagues uh thing which is called uh, that's life science um and this is a uh a student-run life science outreach blog uh where you can read a wide variety of free articles um, and blog posts uh, on all sorts of different life science topics. It's written and curated by um, graduate students at UMass Amherst. And so one of my um, colleagues, one of the people who taught honors biology with me last year, actually um, 
went back to grad school and is now a PhD candidate. And I ran it, it ran into him at, uh, at the Massachusetts Association of Biology Teacher Conference. He and a group from his That's Life Science group came and they were talking and, and promoting that. And I was like, went and checked it out. And yeah, it's my alma mater. And yeah, it's a former colleague of mine. But it was actually really some kind of cool stuff that was in there. Um, I think there's a there's a variety of different things that you could pull as, you know, little hooks or catches for students and on a variety of different topics. I also think, and I don't know how much you talk, I spend a fair amount of time of talking about sort of the academia track, particularly with my AP students who are interested in research. Uh, they have some uh, writings by grad students sort of about their work that gives a little bit more of a perspective of what it's like to be a you know PhD candidate and the work that they're doing and the types of things. Um, it definitely skews more inspirational than like like uh, another research you know, another Western blot didn't work. Like it's it's more <laughs> it's more about successes than than struggles. But there definitely are some embedded struggles in there, um, and I think uh, it, it will resonate depending on your student population, whether it's for you to consume and and use it for hooks or you know the kind of thing that you'd pass on to students who might be interested in, in, in research down the line. Yeah. I always find those like stories I've always found. Uh, I mean, I'll bring in a researcher and I'll geek out for like an entire like class period when they'll come talk to AP biology and the kids will be like, Oh, that's kind of cool or whatever. Yeah. And then grad students come in and they just eat it up. And I think I love like the grad student stories. I think, you know, being closer to their age and yeah. also just like living a college life, but also still doing this hard science. That like it's like a perfect blend for students to see themselves in that role. Yeah, um, so that's cool. Absolutely, yeah. And we send, as I said, I send my kids out to a lot of places, and they always resonate much more with the grad students, I think, than yeah. the the PI. One of the places we send the people is to um uh to the Horowitz lab, uh, um, and he's got a Nobel Prize. And the kids are like, yeah, that's kind of cool. And some kids are bowled over, but oftentimes they're gonna talk about, oh, but did the grad students? They showed me this worm thing, and I was like, yeah, he's a Nobel laureate. You, <laughs> you talk to a Nobel laureate, yeah, they're like, yeah. <laughs> so to be blissfully 17 sometimes is, is a wonderful sure. thing. So, well, Camden, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an opposite, awesome episode. Uh, as I, I think I just nailed my, my time projection with you. I told you exactly how long oh, we'd look last. At that. And uh, so let me give my quick credits. You can support this episode and my work on patreon.com slash lots. I do allow people who are on Patreons of mine to join a secret Slack community with myself, David Konefke, and John Darko, uh, where you get some like little insider information from our posts, and occasionally we post in there. It's at patreon.com slash lots. Music is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. You can get show notes for this at my Patreon page, as well as at lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter, at Mr. Matthew Tweets, or at Life of the School. This will be my early April episode, and I will talk to everybody soon. 